Good morning, good Christians. Are you a good Christian? We've heard people say that kind of thing. Well, I'm not a very good Christian. Uh, what do they mean by that when someone says, I'm not a very good Christian? Normally when you hear someone say something like that, I think they mean that they've failed in some area. They've failed morally or in the arena of ethics or honesty or maybe they haven't been as kind as they should or as generous as they should or haven't served others as they should or maybe even haven't attended church lately. I'm not a very good Christian. Maybe someone thinks that they're not a very good Christian because they haven't been a very good spouse or parent or student or employee or something. They say, I'm not a very good Christian because a good Christian, of course, would do better, right? When we whittle this whole concept down to the basics, I think at the bottom, what we're saying when we say we aren't a very good Christian is that we doubt that God would accept us at this moment in time. Being acceptable to God is the primary underlying concern of everyone, isn't it? I think that we could defend that from Scripture. God has placed a God consciousness in each human being. He's made us aware that we are going to face him one day. Even if you don't know any Scripture, you believe that. How can one be accepted by God? How can we be confident that we're going to fare well on that day when we see God face to face? I think these are important questions. I think people think about these kind of questions often. Well, these questions have captivated the human race since Adam and Eve, and they are the focus of Christianity since its inception, and I think actually the focus of every religion. Am I acceptable to God? This, this subject is called justification. How can someone be justified before a holy God? When someone says they aren't a very good Christian, this is the underlying issue, the doctrine of justification. When Augustine finally understood this important doctrine of justification, his life changed. And, and he himself laid the foundation for the Reformation that wasn't gonna be for another thousand years. And of course, we all are familiar with Martin Luther and his dramatic change when he came to an understanding of the doctrine of justification. It changed the whole course of church history. I'd like to suggest to you that the doctrine of justification changes everybody who understands it accurately. The doctrine of justification changes everyone who understands it accurately. It is what motivates young people to take their small children to remote places around the world to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. This doctrine is what motivates the stay-at-home mom to cross the street and introduce herself to a new neighbor. This doctrine of justification is what motivates people of average means to be abundantly generous to support missions or missionaries or their local church. It's what motivates Chinese Christians to risk imprisonment, even death, to meet with other Christians. How can we be accepted by God? That's the burning question. And the answer is what the entire Bible is about. It was Apostle Paul's favorite subject. He deals with it in every single letter he wrote in the New Testament. Today I want to look at just one verse in Philippians 3, but what a verse it is. 
Last week, I, I gave you a quick overview of chapter 3 by reminding you that Christianity means taking hold. Christ taking hold of you and you taking hold of Christ. Secondly, I pointed out to you in our overview that Christianity is also about change. If you have had an encounter with Christ, if he has taken hold of you, things change in your life. In Paul's life, his view of himself changed, his view of God changed, his view of life changed. Those are the same, same things that should change in us when we have an encounter with Christ, when he takes hold of us. And then finally last week, I reminded you that Christianity is worth it. Do you remember the Apostle Paul exchanged everything for the sake of Christ, for the sake of knowing Jesus Christ, his Lord? Today I want to zero in in verse 9 of chapter 3. Do you have a Bible with you? Open it with me to Philippians chapter 3, verse 9. Listen as I read. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. This is the central uh, verse of this chapter. This is the central subject of the entire Bible. This doctrine of justification underpins every partner in the gospel. Do you consider yourself a gospel partner? The things we've been discussing for the past few months here at Sun Valley, do you consider yourself a gospel partner, a joyful gospel partner? If so, it's because of your understanding of this foundational doctrine of justification. This doctrine is the basis of all of our joy. This doctrine is what frees us to serve God sacrificially with zeal. If you understand this verse, if you understand this doctrine, it's going to change your life just like it changed Augustine's life and Luther's life and Paul's life. Like the simple ordinary people who daily make much of Jesus because they understand this doctrine, your life will look similar. So how does the offer of salvation become mine? If God alone is responsible for my salvation from first to last, then how do I get in on it? How can a sinner come to be in a right relationship with the holy God? Then, after I explain to you the answer to those questions, I want to tell you about how understanding these truths brings an abundance of joy to your life. That's what this sermon is about today, is answering these questions. First, let's take a look at the doctrine of justification from verse 9. Again, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. The doctrine of justification. You might be thinking, uh, Pastor John, I don't see the word justification in that verse. Well, do you see the word righteousness in that verse? Paul uses it twice, in fact. And that word is key to understanding the doctrine of justification. Justification, if you want a, a definition, is a legal declaration of righteousness. Not the actual impartation of righteousness, just the declaration of righteousness. It's a description of what God says about the believer, not about what he does to change his character. It's an instantaneous change. In the moment of that declaration by God about a believer, in that moment, change happens. Change of one's status before God. Not a gradual transformation of character. That's something different. 
In fact, we need to keep these two doctrines separate. Justification and sanctification, two different doctrines, related but two different doctrines. They are both a work of grace, but we don't participate in justification as we do in sanctification. Um, we, we, we understand that God does a work in both, but in justification it's instantaneous. It's completely from first to last a work of God, and in sanctification it's gradual. It takes a lifetime, and we participate in the process. We need to keep these two things separate. Now let's, let's look at the relationship between justification and righteousness. Remember, the word justification isn't used in verse 9, but the word righteousness is used twice, and that word righteousness um, is so critical to understanding the doctrine of justification. So what is the relationship between justification and righteousness? Well, these two terms are very closely related, as you can imagine. And in fact, their words in the Greek are almost identical, if not interchangeable. If you are justified, you're righteous. If you're righteous, you're justified. This is how we must think about these two words and their concepts associated with them. The only way that we can be justified before God is if we're righteous. Unfortunately, we can't pull that off by ourselves, can we? No, we need God to make a judicial pronouncement. An executive declaration is what we need. And in fact, that's what this verse is about. God doing that very thing. Now, what about my relationship to justification? Let's look at this point, justification in me. Paul makes it clear in a few of his letters that it is impossible for us to be justified by our own efforts. That cannot happen. It's impossible for us sinners to make ourselves acceptable to God on our own terms. Let me read for you a couple of verses. One from Romans chapter 3, which you heard read earlier. Verse 28, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And then in Galatians, which is a, a, a conversation with that between Paul and the Galatian church about this doctrine of justification. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, Paul wrote, yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. This was the reason that Paul listed all his pedigree and accomplishments, accomplishments in verses 5 and 6 back in Philippians 3. He mentioned those things to make the point that they were worthless towards justification. They weren't righteousness in God's eyes. They may have been righteousness in the eyes of people that were looking at him, other human beings who lacked righteousness. But in God's eyes, those things listed in verse 5 and 6 were not righteousness at all. In fact, Paul called them rubbish, worthless. If anything, they got in the way because at the time, Paul thought that they were earning God's favor when in fact they were keeping him from God. In, in chapter 3 here of Philippians, Paul was thinking mostly about Judaizers, as he did in many of his New Testament letters when he wrote about justification by faith. But his thoughts here and in other places in the New Testament can be applied to every other religious system and every other human attempt to contribute to our own righteousness. It is worthless, Paul is saying. Every religion's objective is to appease some deity, isn't it? Every attempt at morality 
Every good work outside of Christ is a human attempt at self-righteousness, self-justification. It's an effort to please God, even when done by atheists. This is what Jesus said about our personal efforts. Matthew 5, verse 20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, the most righteous people, at least in human eyes, on the planet, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God, Jesus said. That sounds hopeless. It gets worse. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, Jesus said this, You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I think that puts it out of reach, don't you? Our ability to be righteous, to be acceptable to God, is out of reach. In Jesus' view, and what, what we're saying here is that there's only two religions in existence. There's not 500, there's only two. The religion of human achievement, which is what Paul re referenced here in verse 9, not having a righteousness of my own, that's a righteousness of human achievement. That's the first possible religion. A religion of human achievement by which man works to contribute to his own righteousness. And the second religion is the religion of accomplishment, divine accomplishment, whereby God accomplishes righteousness by the perfect life and substitutionary death of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Let's look at God's relationship to justification. We know that our relationship to, to justification is, is discouraging. It's impossible. It's out of reach. Let's look at God's relationship to the doctrine of justification, to justification itself. In justification, as I said earlier, God declares undeserving sinners to be righteous. Think about that. God declares undeserving sinners, undeserving rebels against God to be fully obedient, entirely holy, and free from any moral defect or impurity by a simple declaration. God declares you to be fully obedient, entirely holy, and free from any moral defect or impurity. That's justification. Justification takes place immediately after regeneration. And what's regeneration? It's the act of God in conversion when he performs, performs a divine operation in the sinner's soul and grants him a new heart and spiritual life. That's regeneration. In that moment of regeneration, God grants the gifts of faith and repentance, which unite us to Christ and secures our eternal salvation. At that moment of regeneration, when God does this work of grace, initial work of grace in our heart, we turn from our sinful selfishness and we turn to Christ, away from sinful selfishness and to Christ. We run to Christ. Why? Because he has regenerated our heart. He's given us a new perspective on all of all life, everything. So we believe that, that Jesus is God after this point of regeneration. Why? Because God has granted us the gift of faith. We believe that what we have, how we've been living, what we've been prioritizing is wrong. Why? Because he's given us the gift of repentance. And so we believe what Jesus has said about himself. Then in justification which follows regeneration, 
God legally declares us to be not guilty, to be completely holy, not guilty of any sin, past, present, or future, perfectly righteous in his sight. What a declaration that is. So how does God do this thing? He, he justifies wicked rebels, declares them to be innocent, not guilty, actually declares them to be completely holy. How does he do this and remain just? God must be just. He's God. Listen to what Proverbs 17:15 says about this kind of activity. He who justifies the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. He who justifies the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. And I just told you that God himself justifies wicked people. What do we do with that? He can't just sweep our sins under the rug and say, hey, it's going to be all right. Don't worry about it. I know a guy. No, he doesn't do that. God actually deals with our sins exactly as his law demands. God illustrated this requirement for the people of Israel in the Old Testament sacrificial system. The innocent animals were brought to the priest and killed on the altar. Their blood was spilt. And what happened? God took that spilt blood as covering for the sins of the sinner. And these sacrificial illustrations in the Old Testament all pointed to Jesus Christ and his work on the altar of Calvary. The Lamb of God spilling his innocent blood for sinners. He took our sin and died for them on the cross. This is what it says all over Scripture. Isaiah 53, verse 6, for example. And the Lord has laid on him, that is God the Father, laid on God the Son, the iniquity of us all. And then to the New Testament book of 2 Corinthians, verse 5, chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Did you hear that? Let me read it slowly for you. For our sake, God made Jesus who knew no sin, who was perfect. God made Jesus sin to take on our sin so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. That's amazing, isn't it? <laughs> That's why they call this good news. So, so how does God forgive sin and remain just? Back to the question. How does God forgive sin and remain just? Our sins are punished in Christ on the cross of Calvary. Every last one of them, past, present, and future. When God forgives, he demonstrates his righteousness and his justice. And I use justice there intentionally because if Jesus died for my sins, the justice of God requires him to forgive me. Friends, there are no sinners in hell for whom Christ died. If Christ died for their sins, they, will, they are or will be in heaven one day, guaranteed. The death of Christ works. Romans 3, 23, which you again heard read earlier, explains this very well for us. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God the Father put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Propitiation, a satisfaction 
God was satisfied. It fulfilled the law. The blood of Christ took care of the penalty that we owed him for our sin. This is received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, God the Father has complete right to forgive your sins because Jesus paid for those sins. He, He died in your place for those sins. So God not only can, but must forgive those who put their faith in Jesus Christ, who are united to him. So two things happen in the justification process. One, God imputes God imputes or transfers our sin over to Jesus Christ. That's the first thing that happens. God takes our sin and transfers them to Jesus Christ. Secondly, God takes Jesus' perfection and transfers that to us, transfers his righteousness to us. This has been called the great exchange. So God takes our sin and lays it on Christ. He takes Christ's perfection and lays it on us. It's called the great exchange. And how great is that, friends? If you're in Christ, you now have his righteousness and he has your sins taken to the cross. What a glorious truth. Jesus himself came into the world, the God of the universe, and lived under the law. He he did so perfectly. He never stumbled once after fulfilling 100% of the law's requirements Jesus intentionally went to Jerusalem and gave up himself to be killed or sacrificed, thus fulfilling the law's demands against sinners, paying the penalty of death. Ezekiel 18, 4, every soul that sins must die, and so Jesus took your place and died in your stead. Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, so Jesus took that wage to the cross of Calvary and paid what you owe. You see, God punished our sins in the body of Jesus Christ on Calvary. God laid on him all of our sins, past, present, and future. Jesus took the legal punishment for your sin and nailed it to the cross. Martin Luther rightly said that the church stands or falls on this doctrine of justification. Now we know why. Without this, we have nothing. We have no hope. We have zero, nothing. Herein lies, friends, the offer of the gospel. God offers to take all of your sin and place it on Jesus. Then he offers at the same time to take all of Jesus' perfection, all of his righteousness, and lay it on you. Credit your account with his righteousness. He gets your sin, you get his righteousness. That's the offer of the gospel. If you accept this offer, you are now perfect in God's sight. You are now free from condemnation. So the burning question is, how do you accept this offer? It is there all over the pages of Scripture. How do you accept it? This brings us to my final point. Me and faith. You and faith. You accept this offer by faith. Now, let me give you a simple primer on faith. Faith is simply belief. That's all it is. If you believe in a thing, you have faith in it. Faith is not some mystical, hard-to-understand concept. It's as common as bread. 
Everyone experiences faith. Everyone practices faith every single day. You, you experience faith or demonstrate faith by sitting in a chair. You trust that chair will hold you. By driving on the right side of the road, you, you trust that everybody else will drive on their side of the road. By going through a green light, by going to a doctor's office, by mailing a letter, by sending an email, by writing a check, by riding on an airplane or bus, by crossing a bridge, all these are demonstrations of faith. Faith is not mustering up your mind to believe that you will recover from cancer. That's credulity. Faith is also not believing in a delusion where some might teach that sin, sickness, and evil don't really exist. That's not faith. Faith is neither a feeling. It's not something you feel, oh, now I, I feel full of faith. Not at all, no. Faith is a tangible thing. Faith is a simple thing. And it's not based on the above distortions I just mentioned. The difference between the kind of faith that people exercise every day and saving faith is that saving faith is absolutely certain because of who that faith is in. It's not that our faith is so great, it's that the object of our faith is so great. It's, it's the, our faith is in the only one in the universe who is absolutely trustworthy and never breaks a promise. Our faith is in the God of the universe, not in the stability of the chair you're sitting in. Someone may run a red light, that chair may break, that bridge may collapse, the plane may crash. But God will never fail anyone who puts their trust in him. Never. The Apostle John is very helpful here in understanding faith. In his gospel, he recorded seven signs of the divinity of Christ. Remember, things like raising people from the dead, walking on water, turning water into wine, and so forth. Then in his first epistle, the Apostle John wrote in the very first sentence of his epistle, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. He's asking us to believe in, in Jesus Christ in his epistle. And then after writing how to be sure that you are saved, how to be sure that you actually have faith, that you actually believe in Jesus, the apostle John says this at the end of his first epistle, 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. I've written this short letter, this epistle, 1 John, so that those of you who believe will know that you have eternal life. That's why he wrote 1 John. And then a couple verses before this, and here's my point on how the Apostle John is helpful. He says this in verses 9 and 10 of 1 John 5. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever, listen closely, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made, whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. Here's the essence of what John is saying. This is my point. God's testimony is greater than any testimony. And since we accept man's testimony about different things every day, every single one of us, about all sorts of things, we should certainly accept God's testimony because it is greater and more reliable by an infinite amount. What does God want from us? 
God wants to be believed. That's as simple as it is. God wants to be believed by you. If we believe people about unimportant things, why wouldn't you believe God about the most important thing in the universe? He is 100% reliable. He can only tell the truth. So what does God want us to believe? First of all, he wants us to believe him. But what does he want us to believe specifically? Here it is. There's two points. I'm going to slim this down to two things. Keep it as simple as I can. The first thing that God wants us to believe is that we are sinners and and deserve the condemnation awaiting for those who don't believe. That we are sinners and deserve condemnation. That's the first thing God wants us to believe. Are you a sinner? Do you believe that you're a sinner? Jesus said that you must be perfect. Are you perfect? If you're not, then you're a sinner. That's not a hard one to grasp, right? God's word said that we're not perfect. We're all sinners, for all have sinned. The second thing God wants you to believe is this, that God loves us in spite of our sin. So first of all, he wants you to believe that you're a sinner and deserve condemnation. The second thing he wants you to believe is that he loves you, that he loves you in spite of your sin. And he demonstrated this love by sending his own son, Jesus Christ, into the world to save sinners, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that who would ever believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life, eternal life. God wants us to believe that. Romans 5, 8, but God shows us his love in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God wants you to believe that you're a sinner and deserve the condemnation, but he also wants you to believe that God loves you in spite of your sin. Do you believe this? Do you believe that you're a sinner? Do you believe, John 3, 16, that God loves you in spite of your sin? Do you believe? If so, friends, you have been granted faith to believe such things. You've been granted faith. You've been given faith by God. It is so important that you understand that your faith is not a part of the righteousness in view here. Some people get that mixed up. The righteousness in view here in Philippians 3, 9 And the righteousness that's spoken of anywhere in the New Testament is a righteousness solely of Christ. Our faith doesn't satisfy God. Our faith doesn't count as merit. The faith to believe and to receive the offer or receive the gift of God in Jesus Christ is a gift. It is simply a gift. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says this. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that faith is not of yourselves, it's a gift of God so that you won't boast. Even the faith to believe the things God wants you to believe is a gift. Faith is is simply a a catcher's mitt to catch the offer of salvation. And that mitt was a gift. So how do you catch a baseball? If I I were to uh, have a strong arm and say, I'm gonna throw you a fastball, a 90 mile an hour fastball right down the middle, You'd probably say, great, can you give me a mitt? Same thing here. How do we accept God's offer of grace, God's offer of justification? By using the mitt that he gives to every one of us who believe. God grants us a a mitt of faith so that we can catch the fastball of grace, the fastball of justification that comes right down the middle every time. 
We must avoid at all costs any idea of our personal participation. The mitt is a gift. It is in Christ alone. Nothing can be added. None of your good works. Not even faith to believe. Friends, if we lived 1,000 years, we would not be any more righteous in God's eyes than we are right now. We will certainly grow in grace, but on our deathbed, our only hope will be the righteousness of Christ. All that is true of Jesus Christ is true of me. I am completely acceptable in the eyes of the Father because of Jesus Christ. So what's in it for God, you might ask? Well, God is glorified, glorified in meeting our needs. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ will rest upon me. Friends, it's no wonder why this crucial doctrine has changed so many people. It's no wonder why, when a Christian understands this doctrine, their lives turn from duty to delight. To know that you are standing before God is not based on the success of your parenting or the success of being a good spouse or a good employee or a business owner or a good friend, but solely based on the person and work of Jesus Christ changes everything. It frees us to trust God for our circumstances. It frees us to joyfully serve him wholeheartedly. It frees us to stop trying to earn his favor because Jesus already has. It frees you to joyfully and zealously pursue God with all your heart, knowing that there's more and more and more joy out there waiting for you. Instead of being weighed down by your failures, even in the Christian life, know that you were accepted by God because of Christ. There's nothing you can do to make God love you more, to accept you better. Jesus has done it all. And by the way, this acceptance isn't just a passive acceptance like, oh yeah, and there's John over there. No, not at all. It's the kind of acceptance that the prophet Zephaniah speaks of in the third chapter of his book, verse 17. Listen to these wonderful words. The Lord your God is in your midst, Zephaniah said, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Can you fathom this kind of divine acceptance? No, you're just not one in a crowd of millions or billions. Jesus Christ, God the Father, the Holy Spirit, will sing over you, Christian friend. Exult over you with loud singing. Doesn't that make you joyful? Doesn't that make you happy, gospel partner? Oh, let's... Spend a moment thanking God together for these things. Dearest Lord Jesus, Heavenly Father, Holy Spirit, we come with you in exultation knowing that we are accepted in the Beloved, that we have received the righteousness of Christ. Lord, I pray if there are any who are listening or watching that don't know you, that now, having heard the plan of salvation, having heard the gospel message and how to receive it, having heard of the doctrine of justification, I pray now, Father, Holy Spirit, do a work in their heart. Transform them through your regenerating grace. 
justify them in Jesus' name through faith. God, for those of us who have embraced Jesus Christ, I pray that we would view this wonderful doctrine of justification as the, the foundation of our joy, the foundation of our delight in serving Christ, of being a Christian. Father, we are so thankful that we are, in fact, good Christians because of Christ, and nothing can change that. Oh, God, we rejoice in these facts. Thank you for revealing them to us on the pages of Scripture. Thank you for this letter of love given to us here in Philippians by the pen of your servant, Paul. Bless us now as we go our way. Remind us of these things throughout this week that we may rejoice in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.